0: Chapter two of Delon by GPR James This Librivox recording is in the public domain CHAPTER two I know not by what letters patent the privilege is held, but it seems clearly established that the parents of an only child have full right and liberty to spoil him to whatsoever extent they may please, and though my grandfathers on both sides of the house being dead long before my birth, i wanted the usual chief aiders and abettors of over-indulgence yet in consideration of my being an unexpected gift my father thought himself entitled to expend more unrestricted fondness upon me than if my birth had taken place at an earlier period of his marriage my education was in consequence somewhat desultory the persuasions of father francis indeed often won me for a time to study And the wishes of my mother, whose word was ever law to her son, made me perhaps attend to the instructions of the good old priest more than my natural volatility would have otherwise admitted. At times, too, the mad spirit of laughing and jesting at everything which possessed me from my earliest youth would suddenly and unaccountably be changed into the most profound pensiveness, and reading would become a delight and a relief. I thus acquired a certain knowledge of Latin and Greek, the first principles of mathematics, and a great many of those absurd and antiquated theories which were taught in that day under the name of philosophy. But from Father Francis also, I learned what should always form one principal branch of a child's education, a very tolerable knowledge of my native language, which I need not say is, in general, spoken in Bern, in the most corrupt and barbarous manner thus very irregularly proceeded the course of my mental instruction my corporeal education my father took upon himself and as his laziness was of the mind rather than the body he taught me thoroughly from my very infancy all those exercises which according to his conception were necessary to make a perfect cavalier i could ride i could shoot i could fence i could wrestle before I was twelve years old, and, of course, the very nature of these lessons tended to harden and confirm a frame originally strong, and a constitution little susceptible of disease. The buoyancy of youth, the springy vigour of my muscles, and a good deal of imaginative feeling gave me a sort of indescribable passion for adventure from my childhood, which required even the stimulus of danger to satisfy Had I lived in the olden time, I had certainly been a knight-errant. Everything that was wild and strange and even fearful was to me delight, and it needed many a hard morsel from the rough hand of the world to quell such a spirit's appetite for excitement. To climb the highest pinnacles of the rocks, to plunge into the deepest caverns, to stand on the very brink of the precipices and look down into the dizzy void below. "'to hang above the cataract on some tottering stone "'and gaze upon the frantic fury of the river boiling in the pools beneath "'till my eye was wearied and my ear deafened with the flashing whiteness of the stream "'and the thundering roar of its fall. "'These were the enjoyments of my youth, and many, I am afraid, "'were the anxious pangs which my temerity inflicted on the bosom of my mother. "'I will pass over all the little accidents and misadventure of youth.' but on one circumstance which occurred when i was about twelve years old i must dwell more particularly inasmuch as it was not only of import at the time but also affected all my future life by its consequences on a fine clear summer morning i had risen in one of those thoughtful moods which rarely cloud the sunny mind of youth but which as i have said frequently succeeded to my gayest moments and walking slowly down the side of the hill i took my way through the windings of a deep glen that led far into the heart of the mountain i was well acquainted with this spot and wandered on almost unconsciously with scarcely more attention to any external object than a casual glance to the rocks that lay tossed about on either side amidst a profusion of shrubs and flowers and trees of every hue and leaf the path ran along on a high bank of rocks overhanging the river which dashing in and out around a thousand stony promontories and over a thousand bright cascades gradually collected its waters into a fuller body and flowed on in a deep swift stream towards a more profound fall below at the side of the cataract the most industrious of all the universe's insects man had taken advantage of the combination of stream and precipice and fixed a small mill-wheel under the full jet of water The clacking sound of which, mingling with the murmur of the stream and the savage scenery around, communicated strange, undefined sensations to my mind, associating all the cheerful ideas of human proximity with the wild grandeur of rude, uncultivated nature. I was too young to unravel my feelings or trace the sources of pleasure I experienced, but getting to the very verge of the rock, a little way above the mill, I stood, watching the dashing eddies as they hurried on to be precipitated down the fall, and listened to the various sounds that came floating on the air. On what impulse I forget at this moment, but after gazing for some time, I put my foot still farther towards the edge of the rocky stone, on which I stood, and bent over, looking down the side of the bank. The stone was a detached fragment of grey marble, lying somewhat loosely upon the edge of the descent my weight overthrew its balance it tottered i made a violent effort to recover myself but in vain the rock rolled over and i was pitched headlong into the stream the agony of finding myself irretrievably gone the dazzle and the flash of the water as it closed over my head the thousand regrets that whirled through my brain during the brief moment that i was below the surface the struggle of renewed hope as i rose again and beheld the blue sky and the fair face of nature are all as deeply graven on my memory as if the whole had occurred but yesterday although all panting when i got my head above the water i succeeded in uttering a loud shout for assistance while i struggled to keep myself up with my hand but as i had never learned to swim i soon sunk again and on rising a second time my strength was so far gone i could but give voice to a feeble cry though i saw myself drifting quickly towards the mill and the waterfall where death seemed inevitable my only hope was that the miller would hear me but to my dismay i found that my call though uttered with all the power i had left was far too faint to rise above the roar of the cascade and the clatter of the mill wheels hope gave way and ceasing to struggle i was letting myself sink when I caught a faint glimpse of someone running down amongst the rocks towards me. But at that moment, in spite of my renewed efforts, the water overwhelmed me again. For an instant there was an intolerable sense of suffocation, a ringing in my ears, and a flashing of light in my eyes, that was very dreadful. But it passed quickly away, and a sweet dreamy sensation came over me, as if I had been walking in green fields. I did not well know where, The fear and the struggle were all gone, and gradually losing remembrance of everything, I seemed to fall asleep. Such is all that my memory has preserved of the sensations I experienced in drowning, a death generally considered a very dreadful one, but which is, in reality, anything but painful. We have no means of judging what is suffered in almost any other manner of passing from the world but were i to speak from what i myself felt in the circumstances i have detailed i should certainly say that it is the fear that is the death my next remembrance is of a most painful tingling spreading itself through every part of my body even to my very heart without any other consciousness of active being till at length opening my eyes i found myself lying in a large barely furnished room in the mill with a multitude of faces gazing at me, some strange and some familiar, amongst the last of which I perceived the pimpled nose of the old Metro d'Hotel, and the mild countenance of Father Francis of Alurdi. My father, too, was there, and I remember seeing him with his arms folded on his breast, and his eyes straining upon me as if his whole soul was in them. When I opened mine, he raised his look towards heaven, and a tear rolled over his cheek but i saw or heard little of what passed for an irresistible sensation of weariness came over me and the moment after i awoke from the sleep of death i fell into a quiet and refreshing slumber very different from the cold obstruction of the others i will pass over all the rejoicing that signalized my recovery my father's joy my mother's thanks and prayers the servants carousing and the potations deep and strong of the pimple-nosed maitre d'hôtel, whose hatred of water never demonstrated itself more strongly than the day after I had escaped drowning. As soon as I had completely regained my strength, my mother told me that after having shown our gratitude to God, it became our duty to show our gratitude also to the person who had been the immediate means of saving me from destruction and it was then that I learned that I owed my life to the courage and skill of a lad, but little older than myself, the son of a poor procurer, or attorney, at Lourdes. He had been fishing in the stream at the time the rock gave way under my feet, and seeing my fall hurried to save me. With much difficulty and danger he accomplished his object, and having drawn me from the water, carried me to the mill, where he remained only long enough to see me open my eyes, retiring modestly the moment he was assured of my safety. In those young days, life was to me so bright a plaything, all the wheels of existence moved so easily. There was so much beauty in the world, so much delight in being, that my most enthusiastic gratitude was sure to follow such a service as that I had received. Readily did I assent to my mother's proposal that she should accompany me to Lourdes to offer our thanks not as with the world in general in mere empty words as unsubstantial as the air that bears them but by some more lasting mark of our gratitude upon the nature of the recompense she was to offer she held a long consultation with my father who unwilling to give anything minute consideration left it entirely to her own judgment promising the fullest acquiescence in whatever she should think fit and accordingly we set out early the next day for Lourdes, my mother mounted on a hawking palfrey, and I riding by her side on a small fleet limousin horse, which my father had given me a few days before. This was not, indeed, the equipage with which the Countess de Bigorre should have visited a town once under the dominion of her husband's ancestors, but what was to be done? A carriage, indeed, we had, which would have held six and, if required, eight persons, though the gilding was somewhat tarnished, and a few industrious spiders had spun their delicate nets in the windows and between the spokes of the wheels. Neither were horses wanting, for on the side of the mountain were eight coursers with tails and manes as long as the locks of a mermaid, and a plentiful supply of hair to correspond about their feet. They were somewhat aged, indeed, and for the last six years they had gone about slipshod amongst the hills, enjoying the Otium Cum Dignitate, which neither men nor horses often find. Still, they would have done, but where were we to find the six men dressed in the colours of the family, necessary to protect the footboard behind? Where the four stout cavaliers, armed up to their teeth, to ride by the side of the carriage, where the postilions where the coachman my mother did much more wisely than strive for a pomp which we were never to see again she went quietly and simply to discharge what she considered a duty with as little ostentation as possible and when the worthy maitre d'hôtel lamented with the familiarity of long service that the countess de bigot should go without such a retinue as in his day had always made the name respected she replied quietly that those who were as proud of the name as she was would find no retinue needful to make it respectable my father retired into his library as we were about to depart, saying to my mother that he hoped she had commanded such a body of retainers to accompany her as she thought necessary she merely replied that she had and set out with a single groom to hold the horses and a boy to show us the way to the dwelling of the procureur let it be observed that up to the commencement of the year of which i speak lords had never been visited with the plague of an attorney but at that epoch the father of the lad who had saved my life and who like him was named jean baptiste Arnault, had come to settle in that place much to the horror and astonishment of the inhabitants he had it was rumoured been originally intendant or steward to some nobleman in poitou and having by means best known to himself obtained the charge of procureur in berne he had first visited pau and thence removed to lourdes the name of an attorney had at first frightened the good bernois of that town but they soon discovered that maitre jean baptiste arnaud was a very clever quiet, amiable little man, about two cubits in height, of which stature his head monopolized at least the moiety. He was not particularly handsome, but as he appeared to have other better qualities, that did not much signify, and they gradually made him their friend, their confidant, and their adviser. in all of which capacities he acted in a mild, tranquil, easy little manner that seemed quite delightful but notwithstanding all this the people of the town of lourdes began insensibly to get of a quarrelsome and a litigious turn so that jean-baptiste arnaud had his study in general pretty full of clients and though he made it appear clearly to the most common understanding that his sole object was to promote peace and goodwill yet strange to say discord the faithful jackal of all attorneys was a very constant attendance on his steps. Such were the reports that had reached us at the Château de L'Orme, and the maître d'hôtel, when he repeated them, laid his finger upon the side of his prominent and rubicund proboscis, and screwed up his eye till it nearly suffered an eclipse, saying, as plainly as nose and eye could say, Monsieur Jean-Baptiste Arnaud is a cunning fellow. However, my father had no will to believe ill of anyone, and my mother as little, so that when we set out for Lourdes, both were fully convinced that the parent of their child's deliverer was one of the most excellent of men. After visiting the church and offering at the shrine of Notre-Dame de Bon Secours, we proceeded to the dwelling of the procureur, and, dismounting from our horses, entered the étude, or office, of the lawyer the boy who had come to show us the way throwing open the door with a consequential fling calculated to impress the mind of the attorney with the honour which we did him it was a miserable chamber with a low table and a few chairs both strewed with some books of law and written papers greased and browned by the continual thumbing of the coarse-handed peasants in whose concerns they were written jean-baptiste arnaud was not there but in his place appeared a person plainly dressed in a suit of black with buttons of jet without any embroidery or ornament whatever he wore a pair of riding boots with immense tops shaped like a funnel according to the mode of the day and the dust upon these appendages as well as the disordered state of his long wavy hair seemed to announce that he had ridden far while a large sombrero hat and a long steel-hilted toledo sword which lay beside him led the mind naturally to conclude that his journey had been from spain to judge of his station by his dress one would have concluded him to be some spanish merchant of no very large fortune but his person and his air told a different tale pale and even rather sallow in complexion the high broad forehead rising almost upright from his brow and seen still higher through the floating curls of his dark hair the straight finely turned nose the small mouth curled with a sort of smile strangely mingled of various expressions half cynical half bland the full rounded chin the very turn of his head and neck as he sat writing at the table exactly opposite the door all gave that nobility to his aspect which was not to be mistaken at our entrance the stranger rose and in answer to my mother's inquiry for the procureur replied arnaud is not at present here but if the countess de bigot will sit down he shall attend her immediately and taking up the letter he had been writing he left the apartment the moment after the door by which he had gone out again opened and jean baptiste arnaud entered the room at once verifying by his appearance everything we had heard of his person He was quite a dwarf in stature, and in size at least, Dame Nature had certainly very much favoured his head, at the expense of the rest of his body. His face, to my youthful eyes, appeared at least two feet square, with all the features in proportion except the eyes, which were peculiarly small and black, and not being very regularly set in his head, seemed like two small boats nearly lost in the vast ocean of countenance which lay before us. I do not precisely remember the particulars of the conversation which took place upon his coming in, but I very well recollect laughing most amazingly at his appearance in spite of my mother's reproof, and telling him, with the unceremonious candor of a spoiled child, that he was certainly the ugliest man I had ever seen. He affected to take my boldness in very good part, and called me a fine, frank boy, but there was a vindictive gleam in his little black eyes, which contradicted his words and i have since had reason to believe that he never forgot or forgave my childish rudeness it is a very general rule that a man is personally vain in proportion to his ugliness and hates the truth in the same degree that he deceives himself certain it is no man was ever more ugly or ever more vain and his conceit had not been nourished a little by marrying a very handsome woman of course the first object of conversation which arose between my mother and himself was the service which his son had rendered me and as a recompense she offered that the young jean baptiste should be received into the chateau de Rome and educated with its heir, which she considered as the highest honour that could be conferred on the young roturier and in the second place she promised in the name of my father that five hundred livres per annum should be settled upon him for life a sum of no small importance in those days and in that part of the country the surprise and gratitude of the attorney can hardly be properly expressed of liberality he had not in his own bosom one single idea and i verily believe that at first he thought my mother had some sinister object in the proposals which she made but speedily recovering himself he accepted with great readiness the pension that was offered to his son, at the same time hesitating a good deal in regard to sending him to the Chateau de L'Or. He enlarged upon his sense of the honour and the favour and the condescension, but his son, he said, was the only person he had who could act as his clerk, and he was afraid he could not continue his business without him. In short, his objections hurt my mother's pride, and she was rising with an air of dignity to put an end to the matter by taking her departure when as if by a sudden thought the procureur besought her to stay one moment and as her bounty had already been so great perhaps she would extend it one degree farther. his son he said was absolutely necessary to him to carry on his business but he had one daughter whom her mother being dead he had no means of educating as he could wish if said he madame la comtesse de Bigorre will transfer the benefit she intended for my son to his sister she will lay my whole family under an everlasting obligation and i will take it upon myself to affirm that the disposition and talents of the child are such as will do justice to the kindness of her benefactress these words he pronounced in a loud voice and then starting up as if to cut across all deliberation on the subject he said he would call both his children and left the room. After having been absent some time, he returned with the lad who had saved my life and a little girl of about ten years old. Jean-Baptiste, the younger, was at this time about fifteen and though totally unlike his father in stature, in make or in mind, he had still a sufficient touch of the old procureur in his countenance to justify his mother in the matter of paternity not so the little helen whose face was certainly not the reflection of her father's if such he was her long soft dark eyes alone were sufficient to have overset the whole relationship without even the glossy brown hair that curled round her brow the high clear forehead the mouth like twin cherries or the brilliant complexion which certainly put monsieur arnaud's coffee-coloured skin very much out of countenance her manners were as sweet and gentle as her person my mother's heart was soon won and the exchange proposed readily conceded the young jean baptiste was thanked both by my mother and myself in all the terms we could find to express our gratitude all which he received in a good-humoured and yet a sheepish manner as if he were at once gratified and distressed by the commendations that were showered upon him helen it was agreed should be brought over to the chateau the next day and having now acquitted ourselves of the debt of obligation under which we had lain we again mounted our horses and rode away from lourdes chapter two